I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. There's a quote by Audre Lorde. um, You can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And Mm. that's what I feel. We cannot be saying, let's try and dismantle something that where other people are benefiting from. They're they're not going to be invested in changing a system that they have benefited from. And so for me, I don't feel I need to exist in that. I don't feel I need to be in those institutions anymore, right? Because there comes a time when the writing's on the wall and we have to read the writing, (laughs) right? This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me, the podcast where we turn acclaimed stage plays into captivating audio fiction. In today's episode, we chat with award-winning playwright Trey Anthony. Her smash hit, The Kink in My Hair, is available now on Play Me. Hey, Chris. Hey, Laura. So I just got a chance to listen to your interview with Trey, and I have to say that I really loved listening to her talk about how she came to write this piece. I was particularly surprised to find out that when she started working on it, it wasn't initially set in a hair salon and that she'd actually considered some other locations as the container for the play, because I I just find it so hard to imagine that it could be set anywhere else. Yeah, that that really surprised me as well. It's also... Well, it's so interesting to hear Trey talk about how the salon has impacted her life and the role that it plays in the Black community. And I was really intrigued when she mentioned feeling like she was she was tapping into something bigger than herself when writing those monologues for the play, something we've heard of before from some of the other writers that we've talked to. Trey Anthony is an award-winning writer and wellness expert. She's the first Black woman in Canada to have her own primetime series on a major network, and she's a contributing writer for Huffington Post and the Toronto Star. Her book, Black Girl in Love with Herself, has been published by Hay House. Her play, To Kink in My Hair, broke box office records in Canada, England, and the U.S., grossing millions, and was adapted into an award-winning TV show. Trey was very honest and vulnerable during our candid conversation. She discussed her perspective as a queer Black artist in theatre and the entertainment industry. She shared her struggles with depression during COVID, and she talked about the incredible journey taking her hit play and transforming it into a TV series. I caught up with Trey, who was between speaking engagements in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Trey, what a joy it is to talk to you. And thank you so much for letting us share the kink in my hair with our audience. The show is such a success story and has really, in a way, changed Canadian theatre and the history of Canadian theatre. And I'd love to talk about that journey the show has gone on. But before we get too far, I just want to find out what was the motivation behind writing The Kink in My Hair? For me, the the motivation really came from, I believe, just this desire um, to see Black women, you know, reflected on stage authentically, like with layers and with real emotions. Um, There was also a desire from within me to really be connected to my history, myself, And just kind of know that there was an urgency within me to just be like the women that I was, who I knew and who I grew up with were not being seen correctly on stage or in any kind of mainstream media. And for me, that was really important. It was extremely important. So I just really wanted to do that. So that's really where it came from. And it came from also on the financial part, just I knew that I had to make money as an artist, like to be really clear, right? <laughs> like I was like, I need to do something because this ain't it. And no one's, no one's, no yeah. one's hiring me. No one's hiring, you know, a curvy plus size black, um, dark skinned woman. So what, what, what needs to get done? And so it was out of that. And then there was also something within me that I knew the kink was bigger than me when I wrote it. That. I felt very much as if something was being funneled through me and that I was being used to write this piece. And so I knew I had to answer to that call within myself and say, this needs to happen. So yeah, it was all of those things. Yeah. That's interesting. So I I get the idea of it, you know, giving voice to voices that aren't being heard. And I get also the idea of just needing to make some money in this business because yes. it's hard. But you very you made a very specific choice to put it in a hair salon mm-hmm. to have these particular characters speak to each other. What was your drive there? Um, for me, I remember when I first wrote the piece, it was like all a bunch of monologues, right? And um, at that time, I had asked Wayne Mangecha, who eventually came on as the director, um, I was like, okay, where can we set this? Like, where would all of these women be? And so at one point, um, I remember we discussed the church, then we discussed them being on a bus, then we discussed like so many different things. And then it came to me because I grew up in a hair salon and my aunt was um, a hairdresser. I was like, it, it needs to be a salon. It has to be a hair salon. Like, <laughs> this makes sense. This is where we gather. So it never, ever started out like it was going to be a piece set in a hair salon. It was just one of those things where I was like, where would all of these women gather? And where does magic happen? And where does candid conversation take place? And I was like, what world do I know the best? And I was like, I know the hair salon because that's what I grew up in as a child. So it just came to be in the hair salon. Yeah. So full disclosure, I'm bald. (laughs) So I'm out of my wheelhouse here, but 
Is there a special connection or a special relationship between black women and hair? Mm-hmm. And if so, can you talk about that? To a white guy who has no hair. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I have so many white friends who came to see the kink and and have discussed this with me, right? Around just the intimacy, I think, that Black women have with their hairdresser. Because, you know, I remember sometimes being with friends who would be like, okay, let's go out on the Saturday. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to the hair salon. And they're like, okay, so you want to meet for lunch? And I was like, I, I can't meet for lunch. <laughs> a nine o'clock hair salon appointment. There's no way I'm meeting you for lunch, right? Because this is an all-day affair. You know what I mean? I might be able to make late-night drinks at nine, but but I'm definitely not making lunch, you know? Because we are there all day. Like, it's an all-day affair. And it's a place where you gather, um, your hairdresser becomes like your therapist, your best friend. Um, and I think because we do such intricate styles with our hair, it's it's a whole process. It's a ritual. That's really what it is. It, it's a ritual that occurs in the salon. And, you know, you see friends, you hang out, you know, food's coming in and out, you're listening to music, you know, you're watching stuff on the TV, there's a commentary. So for me, that's what the hair salon represents. And I think when you're outside of that world and you don't know, you're kind of like, wow, this is what's happening in a black salon. And so for me, it really made sense. Um, And it's so funny, I just recently was reading about this new initiative happening in Canada where they're having, they're training barber shops, um, barbers, black barbers now to actually be mental health activists and advocates because they're also realizing that black men gather in barbershops and it's a way of healing for them. They're talking about things that they don't normally talk about. And I was just like, this is so important because it is a place where a lot of our mental health is addressed, right? And a safe space for so many of us. And so I think when you're outside of the black community, you don't really recognize the intimacy of what hair and that relationship is with your hairdresser and with your barber. And it's something us as black people, we kind of didn't realize it was something that was just happening within our salons and our community. You kind of think like, oh, everybody, this happens. And then when I talk to my white friends or people who do not go to black salons, they're like, no, that, that ain't happening <laughs> with us. <laughs> this ain't, no, that's a real black thing. That's not happening with us, you know? I think that's what I I really, well, one of the many things that I really love about this piece is I get to be a fly on a wall in a world that I'm not normally part of, but also everybody who speaks, they're talking about things that are so relatable because it's so universal Mm -hmm. in so many ways. Yes. You know, I'd love to get just a little sense of what made you the artist that you are today. And I'm just wondering if we can talk a little mm-hmm. bit about your youth. I, I know you um, you grew up in Rexdale and, and yes. you know, Laura and I have a very strong tie to that area. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are some really happy immigrant stories and there are some mm-hmm. uh, unhappy immigrant stories. And I just love to find out, you know, what was your childhood like 
And then ultimately, how did that childhood impact the work that you create? Yeah. So I grew up in Rexdale, um, Toronto housing. Um, and I moved to Rexdale from England when I was 12, right? So that was a very pivotal moment for me in my life. Um, my mom had gone ahead from England to Canada um, and left me and my brother, um, Darren, behind in England. So we were separated from my mother for four years. And when she left, I was eight years old. And then when I came to Canada, I was 12. So as you can imagine, um, being reunited with my mother, who I hadn't seen in four years, um, also being 12, turning 13, which is traumatic as it yes. is for any regular yeah. teen. Um, it was a lot of assimilating, a lot of movement. It was a lot of me getting to know a person who I should have had this intimate connection with, who I didn't have with, you know, and relearning who my mother was, her relearning who we were. My mom was also a young mom who had me at, um, she was 17 when she had me. So even that, um, just imagine like I was coming at 12 years old to meet with this woman who still was in her early twenties. Right. So there was all of that happening. I also, my mom, to her credit, really had this dream of like fulfilling the immigrant dream. So she really wanted to move us out of Toronto housing and buy a house. And that was her main goal. So she worked three jobs to accomplish that. So I moved from a household where I'd grown up with my grandmother and with my uncles and aunts in the house to becoming now a latchkey child who was then in charge of my brother, who there was very little parental guidance in the house because my mom was working and a lot was placed on me to then be the second in command of my mother's household. So there was a lot of change. And then I moved to Rexdale and of course I came from England. So I had this English mm. accent and I was going into schools that now were predominantly black and People teased me, but were like, oh, where's she coming from? She thinks she's better than us. She's trying to sound white. And, you know, t teachers were not used to seeing a black girl with an English accent. So they would be like, oh, Trey, could you read this or say <laughs> this? And, you know, I became this teacher's pet and that's how people saw it as. And there was a lot of me trying to fit in and always feeling outside of everything and feeling really lonely, very isolated, um, and at that time, there was no thing called like, oh, you go to therapy or people are asking you, how do you feel? You're just trying to figure it all out. And I think being a teen, just if if I was just being a regular teen growing up in the environment where there was household support and everything else, it would have been difficult enough. But with all of those things, it became a lot. And I think it really also influenced then how I learned to take on characters, right? And become who I thought people wanted me to be. So I always say to people, I never lost my accent naturally. And I think that's how I also got the ear to learn accents and learn the cadence of how people talk yeah. because I started to study people and I would actually go home and practice how to speak in a Canadian accent because I didn't want my peers to think that I was trying to sound yeah. white, right? Yeah. So there was that. And then there was a way of who I was in school was a lot different than who I was at yeah. home, 
right? Because I then also had to kind of prove my blackness yeah. again. So there was all of those things that really shaped me. And I was also then very good at, and I think this is a trauma, no, I think, I know this is a trauma response where you walk into a room and I instinct um, instinctively knew what was going on. Like I had to figure out and feel it out and go, oh, okay, this is what they want from me. So I became very very in tuned with reading a room very quickly and deciding who I needed to be in that room in order to feel safe or to feel accepted. And so I think all of those things really shaped me as an artist that I became very in tuned with other people's feelings, how they spoke, what they were not saying, you know, um, all of those things. And, um, and yet on the flip side, um, Chris, as well, I also grew up in a household and my grandmother being that who really was in love with the arts, really mm. in love with theater, who really nurtured that within me. Um, my grandmother was the type who would always thought that she was Joe Jackson. You know, I always say that. Like, <laughs> I think she she was like, before it was co- cool, like she wanted to be a manager of someone who was going to be a star. My grandmother yeah. used to always say this to me, you're going to be a star. And she really loved the arts. We watched, there was... Um, this comedian, a Jamaican comedian called Oliver, who does sketch comedy, who was very, very popular. And, you know, I'm aging myself right now, but, you know, we would pop in the VHS every <laughs> single Sunday and watch these comedy sketch shows, which was kind of like a Mad TV Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. but it was from Jamaica, right? I also grew up on Miss Lou poems and, mm-hmm. um, and Nancy stories. And my grandmother was a very proud Jamaican. And so I never felt there was any shame within me around saying that I was Jamaican. Like it was instilled in us to be proud of your Jamaican heritage. So I knew that. And I also knew that the happiest I ever saw my working class grandma was when she was watching these stuff. And I knew I wanted to make her happy. So I kind of said, I'm going to be a performer because this makes my grandmother smile and makes her happy. And so all of those things were just really nurtured within me. Like I was never a person where my grandmother ever said to me, you can't be an artist. It actually was encouraged to be an artist. So all of those things um, shaped me in a way, good and bad, you know, but it also, I think really, heightened my sensitivity to emotions and um it made me very in tuned to people very very in tuned it's interesting hearing you talk about identity and sort of those struggles around identity and i I see that a lot in the kink as well which there's you know questions of basically code switching and who are you so i can see how much of that has ended up on the page Mm -hmm. there definitely yeah, I was saying definitely, yes. You know, it's also interesting you talking about entertaining your your grandmother because I didn't realize this, but you were a stand-up comedian very yeah. early on before <laughs> all of this. How did that shape the work that you created later yeah. on? It is funny. Um, I didn't actually go into comedy. Um, I did this play many years ago. Um, it was called Green is the Color of Spring. And it was written by Jay Pitter. 
And the role was a little girl and it had very comedic beats in it. And, but it was it's supposed to be a very dramatic play. And um, I did the role and there was this comedian named Taryn Della who was in the audience. And she came up to me and she said, oh my God, you're so funny. Like you're naturally funny. And I was like, really? <laughs> right? And she was like, yeah, have you ever thought of doing stand-up? And I was like, no. And she said, well, there's this Nubian show that happens, which is produced by Kenny Robinson. And it's the last Sunday of every month. And you should actually be in it. Like, I can connect you to Kenny and they pay $50 a show. Mm. And back then, Chris, like, it felt like she said $5,000 yes. a show. <laughs> like, like, it was just like $50, right? <laughs> and so I was thinking, listen, you better find something real funny to say for $50, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And she was like, you do a 20-minute set, you get $50. I was like, $50 for 20 minutes, right? So I was like, I can do something. And that's how I came up with the character, funny enough. She was called Carlene, the dance hall queen, who then basically became who Novelette is, but oh. with a softer side. And I started doing Carlene, the dance hall queen at these Nubian shows and doing stand up with her and as this persona and character. And that is what started my stand up career and also really helped me just really hone the skills of being able to do the answer call and response yeah. um, part of what you see in the kink as well. Yeah. It also made me be able to really think really quickly on my feet, improv. It was one of the best things I think that ever happened in my life because I use that skill now as a motivational speaker. I use it as a writer. I use it um, as my theater shows that, um, tour to actually have this connection and that's what people talk about from the kink from um when we even started at the fringe that there was this connection that we had with our audience that had never been done in mm. theater at that time yeah. and it all came back from my comedic skills and then going back going further back of watching oliver with my grandmother and that's what he did. He became this character, all of these different characters. And then it became who Trey Anthony as an artist was and is. Yeah. That's that's interesting. And you know what? I'd love to go down that route, if we could, to talk about the Fringe mm -hmm. show, because we, we all know what the show is now. It's it's huge mm -hmm. and played to very large audiences. I think you were the first Canadian show at um, the Princess of Wales Theatre, yeah. is that right? So, you know, yes. huge venues, but it started in the Fringe, and there's this magic about the Fringe. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you could just talk a little bit about, and I, I should just... Uh, say you know the fringe is a festival that's a lottery festival um they have fringes all over this is based uh the toronto fringe and you get shows that really in some ways start off as just an idea and then explode into something huge and that's exactly what happened here so i'd love to just talk about the early days of the show and mm -hmm. how it went on this journey yeah um, the Toronto Fringe for me, I had never heard of the Fringe at that point in time. I had no idea what the Fringe was. Um, there was an artist um, who was part of the reading. We did our first reading of the kink 
um, at the Now Lounge. And she said to me, um, you should put it in the Toronto Fringe Festival. And this is how ignorant I was. I thought she said the Toronto French Festival. And I was like, <laughs> I swear to you, I was like, the playing French. I can't speak French. Like, why are we doing that? Right. And she was like, no, Trey, I said the French Festival. So I had no idea what it was. Um, and I think that's another thing when you just also talk about accessibility, right? Like who gets access to those spaces? Yeah. Me as a black girl in Rexdale had no idea what the fringe was. None. Like yeah. I did not know this, right? I wasn't in theater circles to know that there was something like the fringe, right? Yeah. So that's another part of my activism of really evaluating theater spaces in Canada. And back then there just, there was no room for us yeah. there, you know? And so, and then also at that time, I think it was like $700 or something to um, apply for the fringe. I didn't have that money. I didn't, you know, and to the credit, um, my partner at the time, she had the money and she was like, I'm going to lend you the money (laughs) to apply. You need to actually go and apply for this. That was like the and best seven hundred bucks ever. The best seven hundred. We talk about it to this <laughs> yeah. day, right? She's def- she's one of my best friends and dearest friends, and I always will say I would not have had a career without. And I'll say her name, Janet Romero. Right? She's the one who gave me that money to apply. Yeah. I didn't have the money at that time. Like seven hundred dollars felt to me like seven million. Yeah. Right? I wasn't working. I had no way. She lent me the money and said, "I believe in what you're doing." I'm going to invest in it. And she gave me that money. And it was a lottery system, as it still is. And I remember, and again, this is where I will say my faith came in. I just, I had this knowing. As we were sitting there and they were drawing numbers, I was like, God is going to make this happen for you. And so when my number got picked, I was like, okay, God, here we go. You're you're doing it. This is how it's going to go. And so that's how the fringe started. And then... The other thing that I did with the fringe, I remember when I got into the fringe and I was sitting there at one of their meetings and they were talking about how traditionally black people don't show up to the fringe and, um, you know, don't be disappointed if this play, you know, only sells a couple of tickets, Mm -hmm. it's going to be okay. You know, we don't usually have a lot of people of color and it's, and I remember just sitting there and going, well, that's you. That ain't me. <laughs> you know? And I, and this is one thing that I feel has been instilled in me um, is to always have a level of tenacity. And so I remember I walked along Eglinton Avenue at that time, which had all of the black hair salons. Mm-hmm. And I went into every single black hair salon with my flyer from the fringe And I said to them, I'm going to give you two tickets to our show and it's free and I want you to come. And everybody um, who was at the Fringe and who even the actors in the show was just like, Trey, this is ridiculous. You can't comp um, your entire opening night. And I was like, I'm going to do whatever I want to damn well do. (laughs) And I was like, it's my show. And if I want to comp it, I'm going to comp it. And I remember having this communication with the hairdressers and I said and if you like the show then I need you to go back and tell all your customers and that is how we sold out and broke box office records um at the fringe the Toronto Fringe Festival because I was like you can't tell me not to expect my people to show up yeah 
And I was just like, so I'm going to make sure they show up and I'm going to make sure that they show up in a way that actually makes sense to me as a business person to make this happen. I'm not going to rely on the publicity of the kink. I'm also going to do my own legwork to make sure that this play gets seen. And that's how it occurred. Yeah. That's brilliant. And to go from the fringe to a TV series and yeah. you, you know, it's, I, I've, I've seen said many times that you're also the first black person to write and produce a primetime Canadian mm-hmm. TV series, which I think is a huge accomplishment. It's also kind of a sad thing it to is sad. realize it's that it's like yeah. 2007, was it? And yes, you were 2007. The first then. So it's kind of a double-edged thing. But mm-hmm. still, um, the show was a huge success, uh, mm-hmm. the TV series. And I'm just wondering, how was it... Like how did how did how did you change your process and your approach to the characters and the script when you moved to TV versus theater? Yeah, um, I have to give credit to um, my co-creator um, Ngozi Paul, who was also one of the original actors in the play, "The Kink in My Hair." Because a lot of time, I get the credit of people always saying, "You know, you're the first black woman to mm. produce a primetime series, but Ngozi and I were the first black women together. Okay. And um, there would not have been a TV show if it wasn't for Ngozi's initiative. She's the one who came to me and said, Trey, this should be a TV show. Mm. And we can make this into a TV show. And to be really honest with you, Chris, I was really against it. I didn't mm. see the possibility of this as a TV show. I also knew as a creative that I wanted a certain amount of um, ownership of my voice. And um, I went against my own inner judgment around that and said, okay, let's try this and see. And there was at that time, it was Vision Television. I think they were offering, I think it was like 50,000. It was some 100,000. It was 100,000 that they were going to offer you to do a pilot. Mm. And Ngozi was the one who filled out all of the paperwork, her and Damien Nurse. Like that was, it was out of my realm of possibility yeah. for my life. And I was kind of like, okay, let's see. <laughs> and we got in and I was like, okay, maybe this is where I'm supposed to go with this. Um, but it changed in the sense of when we went to pitch it, I always say to people, we went in and pitch the kink, which was really gritty with these dramatic, um, very dramatic and, you know, with beats of comedy, yeah. that's what we pitched. And I wanted to do a gritty TV show yeah. on the kink. And we walked out with, I call it the Carib- the Caribbean Cosby show, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that was a real learning lesson for me around, I will always say to people, I was really blessed Do not get me wrong. I was blessed to have a TV show, but it wasn't the show that I wanted to Mm. do. It wasn't the show that I wanted. I'm glad it connected with people, but I was also a, you know, in my mid twenties, I was really in this place of trying to appease everybody and do the show that I thought everybody, again, it goes back to, me growing up again of being that code switcher of trying to read the room and going, okay, what do they want from me? And what I realized what the execs wanted from me, they didn't want the kink as much as the kink 
was this success story. They wanted to water it down to then appeal to the masses, yeah. right? And so I feel like anything that I've done in my life, the thing that feels the most removed from my authentic voice has been the TV show. Like I never was the show that I wanted to do. Um, and I'm thankful and blessed for all of the opportunities and doors that it opened. But it definitely, like a lot of people who go to see the kink and then saw the TV show goes, it's totally different. <laughs> or they saw the TV show and then they was like, oh, yeah. I wasn't expecting this from the play. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, but that's really how it came about, you know, um, and it focused on Novelette and her family, um, her sister Joy, who I ended up playing and she had a son in it. And so it was very different, yeah. a very different show. And so I think it more focused on Novelette's nuclear family with some of the customers where the show, the kink, yeah. the theatrical show, focused more on Novelette and her relationships with her customers. That's yeah. interesting because that's a bit of a reminder that a lot of the success and mm -hmm. happened when you were young. Like you're, you were really a kid. In a, I was in a, a kid. I really was. Yeah. I was in my 20s. Like I was in my mid-20s to late 20s when all of this happened. That's crazy. And so, and there was nobody to prepare me for yeah. anything. Like, you know, I always say to people, there. when I got my first check from the TV show, I actually thought accounting had made a mistake. Like I really <laughs> thought accounting. And I remember I called in Gosi and I was like, we got to cash. We got to cash this shit now <laughs> before they figure this out. And we ran to the bank. Right. Yeah. Because I was like, there's no way I can be making this kind of money. Right. Wow. And in comparison to what other American TV stars make, I realized now it was nothing, yeah. but it was just that mentality. Yeah. For me, I was like, they've made a mistake. So I was given all of these things and there was no guidance around it of like what to do, how to advocate for yourself, how to just really be savvy with money. There was nothing. Yeah. And I was, we were just kind of left to figure it out all on our own. And we were in our twenties. Like, let's call it what That's it was. Crazy. You know? So yeah. it was it, it definitely was really challenging. And I look back on some of the things that happened to me and I really want to hug that little girl and said, yeah. you did the best with what you knew how, yeah. you know? And a lot of people took a lot of advantage of Ngozi and I and our youth yeah. and us being so naive and us yeah. not knowing how to advocate for ourselves. Yeah. And we got really ripped off. I, I, that's another thing that I think mm. that... People like to romanticize the journey of the kink. Yeah. But a lot of people made a lot of money mm. off our backs. Yeah. And neither of us are millionaires by yeah. any of the work that we did yeah. for the kink. And a lot of people actually became millionaires from our blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. And we weren't that, you know? So there's a lot of things that I feel, I know the stories really romanticized and it's yeah. wonderful when you think about where it came from. But I also think there's a financial piece and yeah. aspect that people don't want to talk about of what they did to yeah. young black girls who did not know what to do. That's really, so that's a story that I had no idea and I would have never have guessed, but it makes sense when you yeah. get 
when you when you think about the picture as a whole. Yeah. You know, thinking about you and your youth and then thinking about the character of Novelette, she, at least to me, seems to be very much a mother figure, mm-hmm. you know, to all of the people in her shop. And I'm just wondering, thinking about you and your history with your mom and your childhood, how does that figure of Novelette fit within your world? Mm. I think Novelette really represents for me um, how I would have loved to have been mothered. Mm. Um, There's a softness to Novelette that I feel she became the ideal for me around what mothering would look like if I was mothered in a way that felt safe to me, you know? And I I, I do want to preface this and say, my mother did the best with what she knew how. She was mothering also from a place of not being mothered herself, you know, and also being 17 and being forced to mother, you know? So I think Novelette definitely became for me this ideal of this is what safe mothering would look and feel like. And I wanted that. And also it was a bit of, you know, after many years of therapy, I also realized that I tend to go into relationships and friendships of mothering people mm. in the way that I also wanted to be mothered. Yeah. So there was definitely pieces of me in Novelette of saying, this is how I give and receive love. This is how I take care of people in my life. And um, yeah, she became this ideal mother for me. And I was like, yeah. this is what I feel safe motherhood would look like. Yeah. And all the characters outside of Novelette have this real fragility to them. Yeah. And I find that really interesting because, of course, there's this stereotype of the strong black woman. But these characters are just so fragile and they're they're not even allowed to express their fragility they can only do it through their hair like they can only do it where it's surreptitiously connected to can you talk a bit about that Mm -hmm. I think for me one of the biggest things about writing the kink and I think that's where it connected with audience and why it's still relevant like 20 years later there was a need for me to show Black women in our most vulnerable, sensitive state. And I wanted to create the safety for them to fall apart, not once, not twice, but as many times as needed. And I wanted other Black women who were watching the show to also feel that they weren't just coming to see a show, but they were also coming for a place of healing, a place of safety. And so I think that is why we had women... And it wasn't just black women. It had this crossover appeal where women were saying, I was laughing, I was crying, I was seeing me. And I truly do believe if you write from a place of authenticity and you write from a place of healing and you write from a place of vulnerability, it will transcend race, it will transcend sex, it will transcend gender, it will transcend class. you know, sexuality. And I think that's why the kink became this big um, phenomenon because people were able to really connect to this place of 
here I am standing before you raw, asking you to love all the broken pieces in me as well. And I think all of us, you know, when we take off the quote unquote mask, all of us will always come from this place of, I just actually want you to love me. I actually want you to see me. I actually want to feel safe with you. And that's what I'm asking for. And I think at the core of all of these women, it was them saying, I need you to see me and love the brokenness in me and know that I'm okay. And Novelette provided that for all of the characters. So in that, it became this healing place for not only the women on stage, but also the audience. And then not only us, us as women, as actors, it became a healing for all of us. And I will always give credit where it was due. Like our rehearsal period, there was things where Wayne really made it very much the ceremony and healing space for all of us to know that we weren't just performing. We were actually doing the healing work for Mm. ourselves and for each other. And so there were a lot of times, a lot of us broke down in rehearsal. We fought, we, we, we (laughs) cried, we cussed each other out. We had physical fights sometimes. It was a lot going on, but it was because we ourselves as actors were showing up broken, doing this work to heal other women in the same time as we were healing ourselves as well. Well, that makes so much sense because many of the characters are, are, the the dream of success you have a big tv star you have an executive mm-hmm. and yet everybody still is a little broken inside yeah, yeah. exactly i'm chris tolly here talking to trey anthony the playwright of the kink in my hair and we'll be back right after this i don't know what's real i don't know what's not real Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Reading the monologues and just knowing just a little bit about you, you know, and the monologues in one case, it's a, you know, young woman talking about her sexuality, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody else who's successful, but is being pulled in all these different directions. It really felt like each monologue was a piece of you and that put Mm -hmm. together sort of creates you as a whole. Mm -hmm. Was that, would you agree with that? Was that part of? Definitely. There's not one character in the kink that isn't a piece of me. Um, You know, the exec, um, Shirelle, who was the successful woman who, you know, I was the success story in my family, the one who made it and felt that I had to carry everybody on my back. And there were times that I really struggled with my mental health. I still struggle with my mental health, you know, and so there were really dark days for me. So writing Shirelle was really important for me to put that character on stage of what it means for a black woman to be a success story, right? 
and what we have to carry on our backs and deal with every single day, not only from um, Sherelle being in the corporate field, but also her and the stresses that come from being the success story in her family and the guilt that comes with that, right? The black guilt success. You know, there was Charmaine um, talking about being this superstar and then coming out to her family. That definitely mirrored the relationship that I had with my own grandmother, who was such a huge force in my life. And then when I came out as queer, who stopped talking to me for nearly two years. Really? You know, and that abandonment. So that was where that monologue was placed. The story of Stacey Ann and her, you know, experiencing sexual abuse as a young child was definitely from my own experience as a mm-hmm. little girl. And I, and, I, and I needed to do that monologue because there were so many of us as survivors who never, ever had a chance at that. And that was like 20 years ago, Chris. People weren't talking about yeah. kids who were being molested and what that looks like and feels like. So I really wanted to write that story. And that's where that came from for me. And so every single monologue has pieces of me in there and came from a really real place of truth and healing and reconciliation of my own emotions and own truth of my own life, of what I was dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. And that honesty, I think, is what really resonates Mm -hmm. with people. Yeah. You know... I'm thinking about your life. You're a, a public speaker. Uh, you're also a performer, a performance artist. Like, and I was thinking about the pandemic and how that must have just been, you know, a double, triple, quadruple whammy for you. And I'm yeah. just wondering how that the pandemic shaped you as a person and ultimately you as an artist and the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Well, it was funny. Um, When the pandemic happened, um, I brought home my son. I adopted um, my son. He was 14 days old um, in the December of 2019. And then we went into the pandemic in 2020. So not only was I an artist, I was also an artist with a brand new baby. Um, I also was going through the demise of a five-year relationship. So the pandemic hit me in a way that I think it would have been hard on a lot of people, but I was also going through a breakup. I also was a brand new mom. And then as an artist, all of my gigs and everything was being canceled at the same time. So to say that it affected me would be an understatement, (laughs) right? Um, I fell into a really dark depression and it was the first time I actually got help and got diagnosed with um, functional depression. And it really slowed me down in the sense of trying to take care of my health and well-being. And I think, you know, you're a father and you know this, that parenthood really changes you, you know? And for me, being a mother, a new mom in the pandemic really got me to go to dig even deeper in and being really responsible for my own healing because I didn't want whatever was left unhealed for me to then come out in the way that I chose to mother or not mother my son. And so 
it shaped me in the sense of also kind of also beginning beginning to pivot. So that's when I wrote my book, Black Girl in Love with Herself during the pandemic, because I had all this time on my hands. So I was like, oh, here's, here's a good time to write oh, a right damn a book. book. <laughs> right? So there was that. And there, there was a way of like, I needed to make money again. So all of those things shaped me. And, and the pandemic really made me slow down and kind of go, okay, what's next? but also gave me a time to connect with my son in a way that I don't think if the pandemic didn't occur, I would have been able to mother in the way that I'm now choosing to mother and really realize that all of the unhealed parts of me would definitely be triggered by this brand new little being, right? Yeah. Trey, there's just such a strong social justice theme to the work that you do and uh certainly in the kink there's such a powerful discussion about race within it and i'm just wondering like through your lens as a queer black artist looking back over 20 years two decades has there been change within the theater and entertainment business or maybe there hasn't and what do we all have to do to create the change that we need to see? Mm -hmm. I think there's definitely been change um, in the sense of there's definitely more diverse work being programmed. And I think that's really important. Um, I can't tell you how many um, playwrights come up to me and said, I got into theater because of you. And um, thank you for opening that door for us to tell our stories. I think it's really great that there's so many artistic directors of color now that have the ability to program and give a platform to diverse stories. I think that's really important. Um, I think about the trajectory of so many of the artists who were part of the kink, you know, from the Wayne, from Wayne Magesha to Ordina Stevens to um, Debbie Young, who have had just amazing careers now. Yeah. And I know when we all started, we were all just like nothing on our resumes kind of kids, you know. So I, I'm thankful for that. Um, I'm really perturbed by um, the lack of people of color um, with major roles on TV. Um, I can't tell you how many times there's these training initiatives for people of color and they do these training stuff for, in TV. And, and I always hear that they roll out the kink, right, as their success story. And I think it's embarrassing. I think it's really embarrassing that this is who you turn to. It is a show that came out in 2007 to talk about diversity initiatives in Canadian television. We, yeah. we need to do better, right? You should not be talking about the kink. And that's the one and only show that you got to say, this was our diversity, yeah. you know? Um, and I'm proud, do not get me wrong, that we were able to accomplish what we accomplished in 2007. But I think it's appalling that the Canadian industry, TV industry, hasn't gotten further with our stories. I think it's appalling that as women of color and as writers that we have to leave Canada to make a living as artists because we can't make a living in our own countries and get 
paid the way we need to get paid. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to do. You know, I was a TV executive um, two years ago at one of the major networks and people were really excited and I was really excited. But again, like how much power do you really have to actually change things, right? And so for me, um, and I've always functioned from this place of there comes a time when you knock on the door and you ask to be seated. And then there comes a time when you smash down the door and you just say, listen, I'm actually going to build this myself. And, you know, I'm looking at new initiatives of how I can do theater the way that I want to and also impact and encourage other um people of color to work with me and do their shows and stories the way it needs to be done because I feel um, there's a quote by Audre Lorde, um, you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Mm. And that's what I feel. We cannot be saying, let's try and dismantle something that where other people are benefiting from. So they're not going to be really, um, they're, they're not going to be invested in changing a system that they have benefited from. Yeah. And so for me, I don't feel I need to exist in that, yeah. right? And I feel my next years going forth now, you know, is going to be about how can I empower myself and also empower other artists of color. I don't feel I need to be in those institutions anymore, yeah. right? Because there comes a time when the writing's on the wall and we have to read the writing, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And just know that we weren't supposed to be in those spaces. They don't really want us in those spaces, right? It's really great to tick off these boxes and say, oh, we did one person of colors play this year. Yeah. Or, oh, we have six people in our diversity initiative. Yeah. But do we have any power? No, we don't. Yeah. We absolutely do not to make any significant changes. And so for me, I sit back and I observe, but then there's also a time where I feel we have to go into action. And that's where I feel where people see the activism in my work is in that. I don't sit down and kind of go, oh, woe is me. I'm like, no, okay, so what are we going to do about it, Trey? What are we going to do about it? And that's where I feel the success comes from for me is I don't ask to be invited to a table where you're going to seat me and everybody's getting fed, but you feel you've done a good job because I'm actually at your damn table. No, I'm good. I'm good. And and that's how I do my work. So what does that mean practically? Mm -hmm. You know, when you're basically saying this is going to be my table and you're come to my table, but how does that, how does that work out practically? Practically, it looks for me, um, I've been doing work outside of traditional mainstream Mm -hmm. theater for years now. Yes, I've had commercial success in um, Canadian theaters, but I also produce my own shows. Mm -hmm. I also do my own work. Now I'm currently looking at creating and having a space, my own theater. And Mm -hmm. so I'm really trying to think of ways of how to make that happen. Yeah. And I'm actually, that is my goal, is to have my own theater space and do that work. Um, And I always look at it like, um, 
people keep talking about um, people are not coming out to theater in the way that they need to and theater sales are down and blah, 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 right? I remember, I think it was about seven years ago, I produced my brother's play, Secrets of a Black Boy, at the Danforth Music Hall because nobody wanted to produce his work about black men, yeah. right? People were like, no, 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 right? Yeah. And that play sold out every single night in an 800 seat theater. If you were an artistic director in a Canadian theater who was really interested, <laughs> who was really yeah. interested in getting bums in seats, wouldn't you kind of go, so what's that black girl doing at the music hall? How yeah. come she's selling out <laughs> 700 seat theaters? Maybe yeah. I should go and have a conversation with her and go program her stuff in my season. Yeah. But they don't want that, Chris. Yeah. They rather have 40% sales or 30% sales and keep us out. Yeah. So that to me doesn't make sense. Like what you're saying and what your actions, yeah. they, it, it does not yeah. make sense. So don't tell me that pe black people are not coming out to theater because that has not been my experience. Yeah. It's absolutely the opposite. Yeah. Because when I produce a show, they're coming, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And if you were really interested in having that conversation, why isn't Darren Anthony being programmed in your season? Yeah. Right? Why isn't another Trey Anthony show being programmed in your season? Mm -hmm. If you really are committed to that. Yeah. So let's, let's stop with the smoke, smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Let's stop with that. And so I know I've been a person where people say she's very outspoken. She's very this. She's very that. Yeah, but I also know how to put bums in seats. Yeah. So, and what I'm saying is not untrue. Yeah. I, it's not untrue. And so going back to the original question, if you really want to know what that looks like, it actually looks like why are you not having these conversations with independent artists who are actually selling out their theater shows? Yeah. If you really are interested in saying that you want diversity in your theater. Yeah. So that's where I get frustrated with Canada yeah. and what we stand for, because I don't believe it. I really do not believe it. I don't believe that we can have a TV training program of diverse writers who will come and train with you how to be a showrunner, how to be a writer and how to be, and not one of our shows out of 19 people get produced yeah. on a Canadian network. Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Like, what are we really doing in yeah. Canada? Right. So that is where you've lost me and you lose so many talented people in Canada because you say something, but your actions are a whole different thing. You know, looking back on this journey of this show, two decades, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, what's the most important thing that you've taken away from this that you mm -hmm. would want to share to others, mm -hmm. whether they're young writers, young artists, or just, you know, people who have enjoyed your work? I think the biggest lesson for me is... I would share with people is always know how to get up, get back up. You know, there are things that haven't gone according to plan. And in that moment, I thought it wasn't going according to plan. And then later on, I realized, oh, 
this actually was going according to plan because you learned this from that downfall. You learned how to do that because you didn't have the resources, right? And so for me, that has been the biggest learning lesson is so many people told me that someone like me couldn't do the work that I was doing. Someone who came from working class, someone whose mom had her at 17, someone who didn't go to university, you know, all of those things who didn't go, I didn't go to a fancy writing school. I don't don't have no MFA behind my my damn name. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't have that. But I also know that is why people then feel this connection with me because I show up as authentically as I can, right? And that authenticity is then transferred to the work that I do and also the connection that I make with audiences that I want them to be able to come to my work. And I feel one of the success of my work was the accessibility Mm-hmm. That people were like, oh, she ain't doing Shakespeare, but here we are, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so when I have artists who are like, oh, I want to write the next kink in my hair, I always say to them, no, you don't want to write the next kink. You want to write what's true. You yeah. want to write and be you because all of us have a story to tell. So that's the advice I would give is like, what's the story that you need to tell And don't let people edit your version of you because you then make people edit the version of yourself. You know, your voice is the most powerful thing that you can have and showing up in that. And I think I will always say to people, you may not like me, but one thing people will say is that she's authentic. (laughs) (laughs) Is what you get. Like like my brother once said, I remember years ago, he was dating this woman and he was like, I don't think your sister likes me. And he was like, trust me. If she didn't like you, she'll tell you, right? There's no guessing. (laughs) Trey will tell you. Like, that's how I show up. I really try my best to kind of show up in the best way that I can. Those are great words to live by. Trey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and also for sharing the kink. It's um, something that I think is really important, um, a really important piece of Canadian theatre, and I'm grateful that we can have it part of Play Me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Chris, and thank you for the Play Me podcast. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Trey Anthony talking about her hit play, To Kink In My Hair. You can hear the whole show anytime on Play Me. And we'll be back next with a truly remarkable love story that we can't wait for you to hear. First Matey Man of Odessa by Matthew McKenzie and Maria Homatova is about a Canadian playwright who meets and falls in love with a Ukrainian actress right before the global pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Their journey, portrayed in a play and performed by the couple, delves into their COVID-era romance and offers an intimate look at how the war in Ukraine has affected them. And remember, if you're interested in hearing more long-form interviews with playwrights, we have dozens of them available on our feed, including conversations with writers like Hannah Moscovich, David Yee, Andrea Scott, and Daniel McIver. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can connect with us by emailing playme at cbc.ca. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Play Me wherever you get your podcasts. 
By subscribing, you can listen to all our past shows and you won't miss a single one of our new episodes. And while you're there, we would love it if you would consider rating and reviewing us. It helps spread the word about our podcast, bringing theatre to a whole new audience. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. Our associate producer is Brianne Tice. A special thanks to our CBC team. Anna Ashate is our digital producer, and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani, and the executive director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.